added content for Patreon subscribers. <laughs> so, uh, thank you all for coming. I just wanted to provide a little bit of poetic uh, enjoyment for those of you who are disappointed with the election result and, uh, you know, for those of you who are excited. So, Alexander Rutherford. And to others which you've never heard, and that's a questionable uh, application of fair use, so I'm actually going to go with a different song, which is about the premiers of Alberta. Let me tell you a story of a place called Alberta, with its mountains and rolling prairie. This is a story of campaigns, elections for dynasties and the NDP. There was a time, yes, it's hard to believe, when Alberta was once painted red. Rutherford was the first premier he lives on in a scholarship for higher ed. Art Sifton Cliff's brother led the last best west, built schools and made Alberta dry. Stewart stood strongly for prohibition and watched the liberal dynasty die. The province so rural picked the farmers united much to the UFA's surprise. While Greenfield struggled to govern the farmers, asked Brownlee to succeed their guy. But oh, a disaster, not the global depression. I wonder if you can deduce what brought Brownlee down. Twas Vivian McMillan who sued him for intent to seduce. After the sex scandal brought down their premier, UFAers looked to Vermillion. But in retrospect, Reed's chances were slim, perhaps less than one in a billion. The UFA went down to defeat, not one seat did they retain in Berta's house. The party quit politics, now they run co-ops, but at least Alberta could get soused. And down from I River, old Bible Bill thundered, social credit's chief Faberhart. He found government banking, but so cred thinking something from which Manning would depart. What can be said of Ernest Manning other than that for 25 years he ruled? He won seven elections, built the oil fields, and watched the economy go boom. For the Socreds, all good things come to an end with the premiership of Old Strom. After 36 years, Alberta voters said to the Socreds, get going, get gone. Alberta turned to a new face, Peter Lougheed, a Scotsman, not Mac, but PC. To those of you who would quibble over pronunciation, this isn't BC. <laughs> For 14 years, Lougheed ruled, then passed to Getty. The Grey Cup champ had a rough time renewing the battle between the two cities. Decor lost to Calgary's Ralph Klein. After some rough budgets, a flat tax deregulation of electric and gas, twas time for a change, and after 13 years, the baton to Stelmac was passed. But while Steady Eddie had no fire in his belly, soon Red Tories would rule the ledge. With Alison Redford, who her eyes to the sky palace, that would make a wild rose wedge. Hancock, an afterthought, tended the store as the PC party picked Prentice. He fumbled the vote, lost to Rachel Notley, his tenure a swing and a miss. And that's how we got here from 1905. Alberta's NDs, well, they fight to survive. And the UCP aim for seat 65. So thank you for coming out here to the drive. And check out our Patreon page. <laughs> British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high. Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies Watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 18th, 2019, and this is episode 134. Politicos is the BC Politics Podcast. Tell us what you think of the show by leaving us a review or get at us on social media. Most importantly, help us build the show by throwing us a couple bucks a month at patreon.com slash politicos. And I'm Ian Bushfield. 
On today's show, Alberta swings right, what that means for BC, and nothing about SNC. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics, and their partner, I guess, Alberta Today, which would be very valuable to read this time as you try to understand what's going on over there. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC or Alberta legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Just quickly, thank you to everyone who made it out to our patron slash Canby Report patron Alberta election watching event party on Tuesday. It went very quickly with the results coming in in like 30 minutes, or at least the call coming in in 30 minutes. But we managed to have a fun time there until they kicked us out. Find out when our next event will be by signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash politicoast. We only have one segment for the show tonight, Berta, because the BC legislature isn't sitting. And being from Alberta, I just want to rant for like, well, as long as you'll let me in, but it could go for a while, but we'll try and keep this short. So the results came in. The big shocker in a way is the turnout. In 2015, Alberta's turnout was 57%, solid effort for some people. And historically, it's not been great for quite a while. And so it jumped to 70% this time. And No one quite knew from the advance polls what that would mean, but it turns out it meant all of those disaffected conservatives who didn't like their options on offer in 2015 came out in droves for Jason Kenney's UCP and swept them to power with 55% of the vote so far and 63 seats to the NDP's 24, with every other party getting kept out of the legislature. Poor Alberta party. They did manage to get 9.2% of the vote. They increased their raw number of votes by five-fold. They went from 30,000 to 152,000. So it was like a good night for them, but they didn't manage to hold the one seat they had and now kind of represent the new Liberal Party of Alberta. But we'll get into that because I kind of want to go through all the parties that ran, including the fringe ones, but very quickly. And we'll go in reverse order of how many votes they got. But that's kind of the top line results. We're still waiting for what are called, I guess, vote anywhere ballots. Alberta did this new thing this year where you were allowed to vote in the advance polls for anywhere in the province. So if you were a student at University of Alberta, you could vote for your Calgary riding at the University of Alberta elections office, which means there's 223,000 votes roughly still to be counted. And that could swing a couple marginal seats. There were eight that were too close to call, as it were. Six of those are the UCP in the lead. Two are the NDP. It doesn't make a difference. Yeah, at the end of the day, eight seats, even if they all went NDP, still leaves Jason Kenney with a comfortable majority. The one thing I think the NDP might be hoping for is that they get somewhere outside of Edmonton, because right now they won three seats in Calgary. They're leading in Lethbridge West. That's Shannon Phillips riding. And... That's it. Otherwise, they're like an Edmonton city party, which they were before, but it was like two seats or four seats, and now it's like 20. They might get Banff Kananaskis, which would be interesting. I guess the ski bums swing left. Yeah, I, I, you're the one from Alberta, so you can tell me, but is it kind of like the Gulf Islands of Alberta a little bit? I think it's more like Nelson. Okay. It's kind of the hippies who fled from Calgary or fled from Edmonton and just kind of want to bum around i guess it i haven't spent a lot of time talking to the locals of like canmore and banff but it's a interesting kind of place and a bit of a contrast to a lot of the rest of rural alberta where you saw the ucp candidates win by like 10 15 000 votes in a couple cases which is just absurd when there's only 20 or thirty thousand votes cast in a constituency so lots of big wins for the ucp really not a good night for the ndp but let's start at the very bottom of the pack There's this handful of parties. There's the PC Party, the Reform Party, the Pro-Life Alberta Political Association, and Wild Rose. Two of those sound like they shouldn't be a thing anymore. Three. Well, depends what you think about the Reform Party. But so what happened with Wild Rose is one candidate ran in Edmonton Strathcona, which is Rachel Notley's riding that she crushed easily, of course. Uh, He got 48 votes. As far as I know, he was only there to reserve the name. (laughs) Because if you have a candidate run the name gets held and can't just get scooped up by some other political creation. And so I think in both of those cases, someone was just appointed to try to keep the brand alive. 
The Pro-Life Alberta Political Association is also kind of interesting because this is the first Alberta election that Social Credit hasn't been on the ballot. Social Credit, who was the dynasty before the Progressive Conservatives, they changed their name to the Pro-Life Party, essentially, because they got taken, well, not really taken over, but they just leaned into the Pro-Life brand. Didn't help them, though, because they only got 59 votes province-wide. I think that's one con candidate. The other really fringe party is the Communist Party. They did, I will say improve their votes from 2015, from 181 to 277. Communists aren't really about electoral politics, though, so I think they won't be too disappointed with that 0.1% showing or less. Move up a little bit, and then you have the Alberta Advantage Party. What does that even mean? Like The, the only thing I think of when I hear Alberta Advantage is low corporate tax rates paid for by oil revenue. I think of the wonderful lefty podcast that everyone should check out, but... The Alberta Advantage Party is neither of those things. It's, as far as I can tell, some people from the old Wild Rose who didn't think the UCP was right-wing enough, but also didn't like Derek Fildebrandt, who we'll talk about shortly. And that was what their platform was. Low taxes, social conservatism, fight with Ottawa all the time. So not that different than the UCP, but, you know, every party has to splinter and have the malcontents. So they got about 5,200 votes. Uh, just ahead of them was the Green Party of Alberta, who got 6,800 votes, which is actually down from the last election. So not really a green revolution in Alberta yet. I don't know if there's ever going to be one. It's probably going to be the last province that go green. It was actually interesting. There was a federal by-election in Calgary a couple years ago, and the Green Party, I think, managed to pull second or did very strongly in it. But then the general happened and they were nowhere to be seen so well they, by elections are weird yeah they managed to pull their vote in one by election but not enough we move up a little bit and still under 10,000 votes province-wide is the freedom conservative party this is Derek Fildebrandt's the guy I think we talked about on last week's pod teasing the election who formed his own conservative party with hookers and blackjack actually uh considering some of the uh controversy surrounding him they're quite possibly could be hookers and blackjack literally so one of the side narratives to watch was will this fringe libertarian far-right party bleed votes off the ucp because that was essentially his goal he only ran in strong ucp writings and i think there was only one constituency they got over a thousand votes and that was Derek fildebrandt's own and it was only like just over a thousand so they were non-force in this they were such a non-force they were beat by the alberta independence party <laughs> who got 12,000 votes and 0.7%. It kind of speaks for itself. Another right-wing party, but this one wants it to be its own province. Now we get into the recognizable brands. And while the Alberta Independence Party got 12,000 votes, the Liberals, the first government of Alberta, the first dynasty, because Alberta's a history of dynasties until Notley, and who knows what now, the Liberal Party got 16,000 votes, so just barely ahead of the Alberta Independence Party, I think David Kahn, their leader, did the best of the party, but he was in fourth in his riding, last I checked. Oof. So, not really a good situation. Like, as recently as 1993, the Alberta Liberals were challenging for government. That was Lawrence DeCour's, like, chance to win. Only this little guy, Ralph Klein, came out of nowhere and crushed them. And the rest was history. So the Alberta Liberals are kind of a spent force in Alberta. Like, everyone always jokes that the Liberals won't do well, but now they really don't look great now the brand will survive because the people who love the liberal brand really love it and so i expect it will stick around but it seems like everyone who would normally have voted for the liberal party and we already teased this went to the alberta party giving them nine percent of the vote hundred fifty thousand votes total again not enough to break through in any individual constituency and i would need to double check this but i don't even think the alberta party placed second in any riding which puts them in a really tough spot with first past the post because you can get a lot of these votes, but when they're spread so evenly across the province of all the, I don't know, enlightened centrist voters, you can't break through. And in the past, they have elected MLAs by concentrating on the leader or a couple others. I don't know where they go from here. They have kind of rebranded a couple times. This time they were more like progressive conservative light, but we'll have to see. And now that brings us to the new official opposition and the new government. So the NDP got 536,000 votes. Again, these are all pending the 200,000 to be counted, which is 
actually not far off of the 600,000 they got in 2015. So it looks like the NDP, once the extra votes are counted, will probably have about the same votes. Only more people voted and the new voters weren't like them. new Democrats. Yeah. So why didn't Rachel Notley win? Because it's Alberta. This election shows that this structural fundamentals have a huge impact and are often determinate. It's a pretty conservative province. It doesn't tend to light the NDP just as a general rule. And, you know, there's economic troubles, which often does not bode well for governments. So just a whole bunch of things were lined up against them. And it was a little weird that they formed a government in the first place. 2015, you know, Rachel Notley was really running for leader of the opposition. Like, that was kind of the goal. She locked out and won and became premier, but... Yeah, yeah, that was kind of a fluke, and it, well, reverted to the mean. I think she also didn't really pitch a different plan. Like, she has a record, so she's obviously running on that record. But what was the vision above and beyond that? Like, what was the justification for needing a second term, other than, I just want to keep doing what we've been doing, and don't worry, it'll get better? Wasn't inspiring. Well, part of the issue is, like, Alberta has some economic troubles right now. But there isn't much the Alberta government can do to address them. It's a province that's pretty dependent on oil. All of those inputs into how the oil sector does is, does the federal government approve pipelines? That's out of Rachel Notley's hands. What's the price of oil? That's not something the Premier of Alberta controls. So like, there just wasn't much that can be done. And... and diversifying the economy is something people love to talk about in Alberta, but is just really hard to do. Like, Alberta doesn't have much going for it beyond a bunch of agricultural land and some oil. Well, and she put diversifying the economy in her platform, but that was mostly, we're going to build refineries and pipelines, which sound like the same economy, like on steroids. And Jason Kenney also, I'm sure, said diversifying the economy, but also meant just more oil. Well, I think Jason Kenney's going to... Uh be trained a lot of billable hours and lawyer jobs in constitutional law pretty soon. Oh, and we'll get to that. But I mean, what Notley could have done was talked about the things that are traditional NDP strengths, healthcare, education, social services. She talked up a $25 day daycare plan, which she talked about in the last election, but has been like really slow to roll out. And not just in the like BC slow pilots, but like they started it and then it just kind of stalled. But after that was put in the platform, they kind of just stopped talking about it instead just went negative. And I think there was value in them pointing out how many well, cranky, really the only nutty path, candidates. Path to victory is like you kind of had to rely on just the bozo eruptions making the UCP so off-putting to voters that they wouldn't vote for them. And like there were plenty of those, but not enough. I think there was enough. I think she just didn't, on the one hand, present a better alternative like you can't just say they're terrible and hope people will come to you you well, say they're terrible this was i mean it's I mean, kind of the same as hillary this, clinton well, right you you pointed out earlier that it's probably when all the votes are counted it's going to be pretty much the same number of raw votes as last time so i mean the get your opponent's voters to be discouraged and not show up to the polls might have actually worked but unfortunately for rachel notley and canada's last standing female premier that didn't work, and the UCP managed to turn out 900,000 people for 55% of the vote so far. Now, if you take the Wild Rose and Progressive Conservatives vote from 2015 and add them together, which most pollsters, and I would have told you, one plus one does not tend to equal two in politics. Well, in this case, one plus one equals like 2.2 because they ended up getting 150,000 more votes than in 2015 when they got 774,000 as a combined two political parties. So somehow this like, now obviously part of that's motivated by we, we want the socialists out, but yeah, it the, was the a surprisingly very good effective. at kind of coming together to keep the socialists out. It was a very effective campaign in the end for Kenny. I think he managed to just talk economics, even though his economic plan isn't going to save them. In fact, it's probably going to get them into a lot more trouble as you talk about with constitutional issues. But there's just a built-in bias that, oh, conservative parties will clearly be better for the economy. So let's give them a shot because, you know, the, so the NDP doesn't know what they're doing. And it also kind of raises this question of, does Alberta, Alberta of all places, have a shy Tory problem? <laughs> this is the issue where 
people won't tell pollsters that they're going to vote for conservatives because they think it's embarrassing. Maybe that's an issue in like Edmonton downtown or parts of Calgary. Well, this isn't the first time the Alberta pollings missed the marks. It's just the time when the miss, and it was a serious miss, but because it, it was in the right direction, the result didn't matter. So Eric Grenier's poll tracker had pegged the polling average at 48% for the UCP, 38% for the NDP, 9% for the Alberta party, and 2% for the liberals. So liberals were off by a point, whatever, it doesn't matter. Alberta party was the only one that was correct there. The NDP was overestimated by 5%, and the UCP was underestimated by about the same, actually 7%. If that had swung the other way, we'd be looking at potentially a minority situation or even Does Grenier's model take into account turnout? There's a lot of polling models assume turnout numbers that are kind of roughly historically constant. And if, you know, there's a sudden surge in turnout and it all goes one way, in this case, the UCP, that can be enough to throw the model. Well, and it's hard to poll that because all the individual polls that were coming out, very few of them had the UCP pegged this high. So maybe the polls will be justified if the vote anywhere ballots end up skewing more New Democrat because say they're all students who are at the U of A and U of C who voted NDP, but voted all around the province. So maybe it'll swing a little bit, but it's still, you know, quite a big miss. And had that gone the other way, we could be in an entirely different situation. But the result was right, so who cares? But let's talk, because I've talked for almost 20 minutes now about just the results. Let's talk about what this means for BC. So one of Kenny's first promises is to turn off the taps to enact the legislation that Rachel Notley passed but didn't proclaim or have proclaimed by the lieutenant governor. This would be his way of saying you have to accept the Trans Mountain Pipeline or you get no oil. And he jokes about how Vancouver wants to be carbon free by 2050. And he's like, well, we'll make you carbon free by 2020, which actually sounds good to me. But the $1.70 a gas is already getting annoying. So tough talk. Well, he's going to lose a court battle badly if he tries it. Pretty much every constitutional expert agrees he can't do that. So, yeah, it, it's tough talk. Because it's also softened a little bit since election night because he's sort of talked about how he might proclaim it but not enact it or turn off, literally turn off the taps right away. You know, he's having negotiations with John Horgan. There was just an announcement today that the Trans Mountain Pipeline is going to be delayed again till June 22nd as the federal government and National Energy Board want to do a few more consultations. And Kenny actually agreed to this, I guess. Huh. So I I think he's wanting to make sure it's done right rather than just fast and ends up in court again. Yeah, I can kind of see Kenny on that one. But the, the liberals, I'm not sure they want to be moving the approval date closer to the election than they have to. They might not have a choice at this point. If the consultations are going slow, they're going slow. But all of this is kind of gearing us towards Wine War 2, WW2. <laughs> Some of the talk is ridiculous, though. I heard on the In the House podcast, they were talking about one of the things Kenny has said is, so Alberta's rat-free. There are no rats in Alberta. It's a claim to fame that's weird, and it's cool. They have mountains on one side, the north on the one side, Rats, I guess, don't like to walk across the prairie, so it's not actually that hard. But there is a rat patrol, an inspection service run by the government of Alberta. Kenny has threatened to use this patrol to stop every truck coming from BC into Alberta to make sure they're rat-free as a way to encourage us to be more accepting of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which I give him credit for creativity. That is creative. And I don't think that's unconstitutional. It, it would make some interesting legal arguments. Yeah, it would be interesting legally for sure. But yeah, I mean, this country is full of not unconstitutional, but still really bad interprovincial trade barriers. So I guess they'd be able to do that. And of course, BC is already talking about challenging every one of these things that they'll potentially do as soon as they're brought up. So yeah, sparks are going to fly between Horgan and Kenny, I'm sure at some point. It's started out optimistic, but who knows? Horgan sort of is the last left-leaning premier in the country. There's a couple liberals on the East Coast. 
in yeah, Atlantic it, Canada. We'll, we'll see how uh, PI goes. Yeah. Uh, and Newfoundland is now also going to the polls. Oh, yeah, they're going to the polls, but still have a liberal government in Nova Scotia, so that's something. The last thing I noticed in Kenny's statement and what he's really, well, he was ramping up during the campaign and he's kind of doubled down since is he's announced that he's going to launch a public inquiry into what he's calling foreign-funded environmentalists and other nonprofits. And as someone who works in a nonprofit organization that often is critical of governments or wants to see policy changed, this terrifies me a bit. It has airs of the Harper political audits of charities, but on like steroids or something. Because just the idea that a government is coming after your organization and demanding audits and proof of all your finances... And he's specifically naming Pembina, David Suzuki Foundation, Lead Now, Tides Foundation. I don't want to have to deal with that shit. The foreign-funded oil companies don't have to deal with that shit. It's, it's McCarthyism. It really is. And this same language is being picked up by Ford and Scheer. Oh, and it's the, even the, the, Wilkinson the, is like yeah, the starting to think is, about it. Yeah, the Tides thing is just a meme that goes around right half the spectrum. Tell them to stop. It's I think you're resuming my poll. <laughs> <laughs> like at the federal level, the liberals finally changed the charity rules so that charities can do what are called public, now called public policy dialogue and development activities. It's a mouthful, PPDDAs. And this was instead of the, you can only spend 10% of your resources on quote unquote political activities, whatever those may be. And that's an improvement because charities don't have to abide by as strictly arbitrary rules. But there are still mechanisms that, you know, antagonistic government to the nonprofit sector can use to go after charities who are often very small and have little money and spend most of it on programs and staff. And audits cost a lot of money. So the fact he's planning to set up a war room in Alberta to counter misinformation, like, how is this not Red Scare? <laughs> I, I have no answer to that. But given, you know, a lot of these charities are based here in BC, and so I think we'll see some spillover effect into how much work they can do and what this public inquiry could mean. I think at a very basic level, Alberta has some third, new third-party election financing laws controlling what can be spent there, and there's value to those. And it sounds like he's going to ramp those up to 11 to make sure everyone's reporting every penny yeah, maybe some like lobbying at changes or something too, but like it would be like limited to Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. Although eventually probably copied by Ford and Mo and Pallister and the resistance team, who are now just like the governing team of the majority of the provinces of this country. So that's the conservative bloc that's now ruling from Alberta to New Brunswick, with Quebec being the little like asterisk conservative because well Francois Legault is still center right. He's like more pro environment than any other premier. Well, it's like all politics is local. Just like the Alberta NDP is more pro-oil than any other NDP. Yeah, the Quebec politics falls along its own spectrum and is oriented towards its own local issues. So, yeah, even the right-wing Quebecers don't like pipelines. But with the exception of Quebec, you see all these conservative premiers rallying against the carbon tax of Justin Trudeau. Kenny has promised to kill Alberta's carbon tax and really just throw Notley's entire climate leadership plan in the garbage because apparently climate change isn't something we need to worry about. Part of Trudeau's deal with Notley was you do some good work on climate with me and I'll help you get the pipeline done. If that deal is undone by Kenny, does Trudeau go back on the pipeline? Did spend several billion dollars to buy it. It would look pretty foolish of him to go back on it now can't really see it happening. It's not like he's got seats to win in Alberta. They hold four, but those seem pretty oh, tenuous. Aren't like two of them being kicked out of caucus already? So it's That's true. Two seats, really? And two former liberals now independents? So, yeah, maybe the carbon tax is up in the air federally, or maybe he just imposes it on all the provinces except BC and Quebec. Well, it's only four provinces that are have it being imposed on at the federal level. Well, it's about to be five. Yes, soon to be five. But that still leaves half the country with actual climate plan, or half the provinces. Well, and I guess the other federal policy that looks to be under a bizarre threat, the dumbest threat, is Alberta and 
now Saskatchewan as well, talking about how they want to hold referendums on equalization. Kenny is a former minister like of the federal government. Like He knows how the equalization works. So this is just being deliberately deceitful on his part. But why is Albert why are Albertans subsidizing Quebec kids to go to daycare? <laughs> it's basically it's how they see it. It's how it's yeah. reported in the news there every day. Yeah, and, and the way it's reported leaves people to think that you know the government of Alberta writes a check to the government of Quebec, which they Well don't. they almost think they personally are writing a check. Yes. Whereas instead the, you know, GST and income tax and all the, you know, just federal taxes, a portion of that gets just sent to various provinces based on a complicated formula. Just to repeat that, the federal government collects taxes of its own and divides those among the provinces. That's what equalization is. It's not Alberta's money goes to Quebec, Mm -hmm. just to be clear. Yeah, and even with Alberta's economic troubles, they're still pretty high up there on the uh, GDP per capita, which is a bit wild. They may have some valid complaints about how resource revenues are accounted for in that. I don't know the ins and outs of that, so I'm not going to say whether or not that's felt. But, you know, there's probably a plausible case to be made that, okay, maybe they're overvalued in one respect. But like it, it's that's a pretty small bit of the overall thing. And even if Alberta got its way in resource revenue, they still wouldn't get equalization, still be paying into the system. Well, part of that just reflects the fact that Alberta doesn't collect enough taxes as a province and doesn't redistribute enough. Basically, they have very low taxes. Kenny wants to even lower the existing corporate taxes. Like Alberta has the lowest taxes, I think, in a, except for in one or two measures where BC has beat them. But Kenny's like, we'll take that number one title again, race to the bottom. But if Alberta was put that in... the NDP that just got rid of the flat income tax? Yeah, by putting... A second bracket in. A second and maybe a third at like was... 150000 and 200000 or something like that. Like it's the it's still a pretty flat income tax. You have to be making a lot before you hit bracket two. But yes, they have a quote unquote progressive income tax finally. Or again, I think it was Klein in the 90s who brought it in as a flat tax. Alberta could bring in a modest sales tax and get rid of its deficit overnight. Alberta could bring its income tax up to BC's levels and get rid of its deficit overnight. It still wouldn't make the people who complain about equalization happy. No. So those referendums may happen and that will... Oh, also, we should mention that like referendums don't actually do anything. Like it's purely a symbolic gesture. And can you have some weird theory involving like the Quebec secession reference that does not say what he thinks it says? Well, I think this falls in the same flavor as Alberta's perennial Senate elections. They've kind of stopped holding those since the Supreme Court told them the Senate's not going to change until all of the provinces agree, or the 710 rule. Also, applies. I don't think they have but a government in Ottawa that's willing to play ball with that. That didn't stop them in the 90s. They would elect a senator, and the federal government would go, that's nice, we're picking him instead, or her. So Alberta just likes to vote on things sometimes. But speaking of voting, let's maybe finish off talking about Alberta by looking at the federal election to come and what this might tell us about that. And the things I wrote down here are some of the things I've already talked about. This idea of running on just how evil the other guy clearly has its limits. So Trudeau's current strategy that we've seen of continually talking up how bad the conservatives are and how you know bad they'll mess up the country and how many radicals are in there. Yeah, now are as we going to have another, um, was it soldiers in our streets ad or is it, are they going to sink that low or... I mean, they could, but again, when you have to offer something is what I think, especially when it's closer, like Notley's path to victory was n- super narrow and clearly not even real. Trudeau's got a tough situation. I think the other thing that with Trudeau, this shows is that running on climate might not be the best way to go. Like it, it can work, you know, 2009, the liberals here in BC ran a good re-election campaign, basically off the carbon tats. Um, and that was you know major campaign issue. They got one re-election. It was all good. But like it hasn't gone as that well in other places too. And it's really weird that like climate is what the liberals keep trying to pivot to when they're not trying to shit talk how terrible Andrew Shearer is over the last two months and the everybody looked away from SNC Lavalin. I'm not sure it's really the thing that like is gonna necessarily be what they 
want as their headline issue if they're really gunning hard for re-election. Important, but maybe not the vote mover that they seem to think it is. Yeah, I think it might be shifting federally. Clearly, Alberta has its limits. A lot more people are talking about climate, but yeah, I think it's rarely ranked as a number one issue for people. Usually it's jobs, economy, sometimes healthcare, and some other social issues, but I want to see it higher. It is important. One of the other lessons I think we can take from Alberta is that the super fringe right parties might fizzle out when faced with most of their ideas being stolen by the main right-wing party. So the freedom conservatives are to the UCP, in my mind, what the People's Party is to the Conservative Party of Canada, especially with Kenny adopting most of what the right-wing social conservatives would want or the libertarian conservatives would want. And when you look at what Scheer talks about on the kind of issues that Maxime Bernier talks about, the only policy difference is your favorite one. So, oh, supply management. <laughs> yeah. Where else do they really fundamentally differ other than to, like, degree? What's the big one, yeah. Because, like, they both are... Oh, who, oh, who should be leading the conservative party? Oh, That's yeah. the big disagreement. <laughs> that was the, that else. was the same disagreement Derek Hildebrandt, I think, <laughs> yes. had. Actually, no, he couldn't even be a caucus member. But I do think we will see Hildebrandt come to the People's Party as a candidate. And I think... That, that, yeah, I could see that happening. I think Ryan Hassman made that prediction on Dave Berta last week, so I won't take full credit for that one. It's just hard for breakaway parties to work well, especially if they don't have, like, a huge, like, underlying cause to really rally behind. Like, you know, the Reform Party, you know, they tapped into something quite big in Western Canada and were able to use that to kind of launch themselves. And they had a regional base. Same yeah, they with, had a regional the base, block. which, yeah, neither one of those really do. And, you know, both of those were really, like, personal vanity projects that didn't end up going anywhere. Th those types of parties are hard to catch, get going. Yeah, and we're seeing federal polling put the People's Party at 1% to 2% maybe, at which point, why are you even polling them? Like, maybe once you see a big... You kind of have to include them as an option, but while there's an MLA sitting, and they talk about running a lot of candidates, but I think they'll kind of just disappear into the dustbin of history soon. Maybe Maxime yeah, holds his seat on personal popularity yeah, in the writing. Yeah, like, his family has, I think, much more ties and roots in his writing than Phil Lebrandt had in his. So that might be the one distinguishing factor, but, yeah, I, I don't think the People's Party's going to suddenly vault into like official opposition status or anything even beat elizabeth may yeah for a number of seats well otherwise i think alberta's not going to be the competitive battleground to watch in october when the federal election is held again maybe a couple seats in calgary maybe a couple seats in edmonton to watch but it's going to be a pretty solid blue fortress and i think what we even saw with how motivated conservative voters were in the province well, actually, it, that's the other thing I, I didn't mention on this, is that you know, both the UCP and the federal Tories have fairly recent memories of what a divided vote does. So there's also that impetus to, well, shun the little breakaway party. Yes. Well, aside from the federal election and the Alberta election that's now behind us, as we mentioned earlier, the PEI election is coming up next week. That'll be on Tuesday. So... That'll be the interesting one to watch because the Greens are still pulling in first and possibly majority territory, which would be the first Green government in Canada. But it's PEI, so it's hard to know how good the polls are there. There's not a lot of people. PEI is also having an electoral reform referendum. Another one poll. One? Yeah, so they had a ranked ballot last time as a mail-in ballot, and I think they had like a 10 to 18 percent return rate and so the premier went well that's not enough to change the system off of a mixed member proportional one in the final round so instead they opted to hold a referendum in conjunction with this election and now no one's paying attention to the referendum because the election's more interesting sorry pr supporters but there was a poll today suggesting mixed member proportional may be in the lead but as we saw in bc polls on referendums can mean nothing sometimes so maybe PEI is the first province to actually switch to PR. And if you have a green government that then brings in PR, things will be really interesting there. Although that's like the extent of my PEI politics knowledge. I, I don't have much more. 
other than the interesting fact that I believe it's the only legislature where the government and opposition sides are reversed because of where the stove was placed. The government wanted to be warmer in the winter. The other election that's coming up and was just called is in Newfoundland. It will be held on May 16th. I looked up the polls earlier, and it looks like the Liberal government there is still in first, but the Progressive Conservatives are nipping at their heels, so that campaign might matter and might see another Conservative government elected, or it might just see the Liberals stay in power. I don't know much else about Newfoundland politics to say. So once we have those election results in, it'll just be the summer until Justin Trudeau sends us to the polls. Well, moving on to quit takes. Uh, speaking of the federal election, the Parliamentary Budget Office has announced that they will be costing party platforms for this upcoming election. This was a promise the Liberals had made in the last federal election, and it's something a few other countries do. Australia, the Netherlands, I think the UK might do it. And basically how it works is any political party, I guess major one, I don't know exactly how they distinguish who can ask, maybe it's any registered political party, can go to the parliamentary budget office and say, here's our platform. What will this cost? Or here's a pledge we want to do, a policy. What will it cost? You know, pharmacare. How much would it cost to roll out this version? And they'll get those numbers back and they can say, look, independent economists who are pretty well respected across the Canadian pundit class. is is well respected. And you can use that to kind of justify your numbers. And it'll be pretty interesting. So Parliamentary Budget Office has shut down all the rest of its work until the election just to focus on doing party platforms from now until the election. And I think they have a budget of well, like half a million June, dollars. Right? Yeah, June. June. Well, yeah, the, the House going to pretty much rise for the last time before the election before that. So it made sense. I think this is a really good policy. It can hopefully help remove some of the fudginess we've seen in previous platforms where I think, was it the NDPs in 2015 where there was just like a fudge factor? Oh, those were, that was terrible. They had like a, their costed, costing was like a single sheet and the math didn't even like really add up. And it's like done on a napkin. Yeah, no, they, they don't raked over the coals for that one pretty bad and they kind of deserved it. And what the hell were they thinking? Like the NDP of all parties has that perception issue going against them. They really needed to nail that down. Oh, Tom Mulcair. There's one interesting feature of this PBO initiative, which is they say they won't allow themselves to be used maliciously to like mock another party. And the example they give is, say the NDP announces it wants to do a pharmacare plan, but they don't want the PBO to cost it for some reason. Another party can't then come to PBO and ask them to cost that idea should, say, the Liberals want to launch it and then go, haha, see, that plan will cost $60 billion when you say it will cost $24 billion. How that gets operationalized is going to be an interesting question. So, like, whoever call, like calls dibs on National Pharmacare gets to be the one who gets PBO to budget it for them? I guess. I mean, maybe they'll just have to distinguish their policies enough that they can. I'm still interested to see if this helps the debate at all as we go into the election, but you know, more information is better, and I like it. One place we will be getting a little bit more information, it looks like, is on that Aga Khan trip that Justin Trudeau took a number of years ago that was like a big scandal once upon a time before we had to focus on Quebec engineering giants. The federal court has just issued a ruling following the decision by a previous commissioner of lobbying to not investigate this Aga Khan trip from a lobbying act lens. Now, the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner, Mary Dawson, did find that Trudeau violated the ethics rules around accepting this trip to the Aga Khan's island. But the lobbying commissioner said, oh, we don't think we need to investigate this because the Aga Khan was not paid. He didn't get a check to lobby the government. And now the federal court has written this 50-page ruling that essentially says, The way the commissioner interpreted payment was too narrow. And so the Aga Khan should be thought of as a lobbyist, just not in the traditional, hey, Scott, here's 200 bucks, go tell Trudeau that he should be voting this way on the next bill. Instead, it could be, you know, maybe you get perks, maybe you just have other benefits. And so 
this decision does two things. It both requires the lobbying commissioner to revisit this investigation, which could bring more light to the ethics violations that were found in this Aga Khan trip, but it could also mean a lot more people than previously thought are subject to the lobbying act. I mean, if you're inviting the prime minister for like a week and flying him around in your private helicopter, like that's, you know, that's not the sort of thing that like random people just get caught up in. So I think most people be pretty safe and this isn't going to end up being overly broad. The organization that brought the lawsuit forward was Democracy Watch, and they have a lot more information on this and comments on it. So they're hopeful this will apply to a lot more people, but it'll be interesting to see if this results in just a redefinition of payment in the lobbying act itself, because the liberals have a little bit of time, although that would look sketchy, or if we're just going to see a different approach from the commissioner. But at very least, I look forward to seeing what they find out about the Aga Khan thing and make a decision on that. Well, one thing Trudeau is going to have to decide on before the next election is who should be on the Supreme Court, because Justice Desson has announced his retirement effective September 15th, which, for those of you doing the math at home, is exactly one day before the writ must drop to meet the fifth election date, which is interesting and probably it doesn't seem to be a coincidence. Effectively, this is Gasson giving Trudeau one more Supreme Court appointment, which is not really a controversial thing in Canada. It's weird that it's happening exactly like this. In the U.S., this would be a major scandal, and the Conservatives are trying to play it up, like, not on a partisan lens, thankfully, because we haven't made our court partisan yet, but on the, we still don't know everything about this leak about the last time there was a Supreme Court appointment where supposedly Jody Wilson-Raybould was trying to get her favorite candidate into the chief justice position. Where did that information come from? We should know that before you appoint someone else. Which is fair. Like the, the ham-fisted leaks by everyone assumes the liberals on this one, which is almost certainly what happened, that did kind of add a partisan tinge to the Supreme Court selection process. So now getting to the bottom of this before selecting other justices reasonable. I'm not as convinced, but I'm open to be. I do agree that it's not the conservatives who are putting our court at risk of becoming partisan. This kind of move smells like Trudeau and Justice Gasson talked about it. Now, Gasson's interesting, right? He's 59, so he's retiring a bit young. He says it's for personal reasons. I have no reason to doubt that. But you can always adjust your timing a bit, right? Yeah. There's no reason he has to go on September 15th and couldn't go on October 15th, I'm assuming. Well, he could. He just The caretaker convention generally means you don't appoint Supreme Court justices exactly. during an election. But Gasson was actually a Harper appointee. Like He was appointed by Stephen Harper in 2014. He's not been part of the conservative block on the Supreme Court as much as there is one. Isn't really much of one. It was like... There's Cote who just likes dissenting. Well, Cote will write a dissent for anything. Yeah. And I think there's Brown and maybe one other who's kind of leans a bit more. Roe is kind of all over the place. But we're nowhere near as partisan in the U.S. And that's a good thing. I will note that Justice Gasson wrote my favorite decision of the Supreme Court, which is the uh, Movement Like Quebecois versus Saguenay, the municipal prayer case. And it's just a beautiful piece of writing for anyone who wonders if Canada has the separation of church and state that is enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, read that decision and tell me we don't. I mean, they use the language of a duty of religious neutrality, but it's the same thing. Canada is a secular country because of that decision. But back to the politics, the timing is so suspect here. And Trudeau's already announced his picking process is underway. Kim Campbell will be heading a committee to name three or four eminent judges, I think. I think it's up to five. Several eminent judges that the prime ministers can then select from. I think that's not a bad process. Yeah, it, it is non-binding. He can pick from outside of that group. But it doesn't introduce some ability to have someone else say, hey, here are some smart people you should think about. So I guess we'll have to see who Trudeau picks because I don't think there's anything that can really stop him from... No, oh, no, nothing really at all. Be, beyond the fact that the timing gets really tight and it's it's not some yeah that's what i actually wanted to point out on this is just how tight a time frame that is to basically 
you have to have your Supreme Court justice lined up for the day he retires, because otherwise Trudeau can't appoint anyone till after the election. And I think I saw a couple articles pointing out that after the previous retirement, or maybe the one before that, Trudeau waited a few months after that to actually appoint someone. So this yeah, time so that, is that, being that, much faster. Yeah, that, that's what almost makes it more interesting. Isn't that like, oh, is this some sort of plan that's being talked up between them? But almost, it almost seems like the opposite. It's like the Trudeau government hasn't been quick to get people appointed um, or stuff through parliament. Not that this really has to go through parliament, but it's you'd think if that was the case, they'd have a buffer in there. Well, finally, a story comes to us via... McLean Kay, former Christy Clark speechwriter, but now founder of The Orca, a new site covering BC politics, where he has found the exclusive leak that BC Ferries is considering what will potentially be the most popular decision yet to allow some beer and wine sales on select routes as a pilot project. Cool. I'm excited for this. It'd be nice to be able to enjoy a beer on the ferry. Like I, I normally put passenger, so... You know, that's not a problem for me. Some people have raised concerns that, you know, well, you'll be driving on both ends of the ferry trip. So that potentially might be an issue. But yeah, that seems like a good idea. I think they might just have to do a one or two drink. Yeah, there's a two drink mats on it. It's only available as a pilot at the Pacific Buffet on Select Fruits. On the Chwasin Swartz Bay. I believe so. Like, I'm not against it, and I would definitely drink a beer on the ferry because that sounds quite relaxing and enjoyable. I'm also not a fan of people drinking and driving. You could probably find a happy medium here. Yeah. Seems like a good pilot, and hopefully we can have a little bit of fun in this province. Yeah, like if some, you know, municipalities still have, like, parking minimums for bars, you know, in this province, I think we can allow the odd uh, beer on a ferry. And that has been Politos. Find links to everything we talked about at politos.ca. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to subscribe and let us know what you think. Support the show and get access to our exclusive Slack channel and invites to patron-only events at patreon.com slash politos. And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sirsha Plotnikoff. Thanks for listening.